From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house them in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. Good afternoon, I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up on today's programme, we interview Labour MP and Shadow Foreign Minister Catherine West. And we'll hear from COP26 President Alex Sharma, who spoke to Bloomberg in Davos about the transition to green energy. Plus, should companies get a tax break? We'll ask the Centre for Policy Studies why they think the government should cancel its planned increase to corporate tax. So this is finally the week, probably, that Sue Gray will release her much-delayed investigation into Partygate, the scandal that's dogged Boris Johnson's administration for months. Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi says that the Prime Minister didn't use a meeting with the senior civil servant to try to influence her report. Publication could come as soon as today or tomorrow. As to the other story on the front page of many newspapers in the UK today, the soaring cost of living, more reports of disagreements at the top of government. Treasury Minister Simon Clark told the BBC today that he cannot rule out a windfall tax on oil and gas companies, though it was not something that he was, quote, philosophically attracted to. The boss of one of Britain's biggest energy companies, Eon, meanwhile, says that one in five households are already in fuel poverty and that that number could double in October when the price cap rises again. Well, let's discuss today's big issues with our first guest, Catherine West, Labour MP from Hornsey and Wood Green in London. She's also the party's Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs. Catherine, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Let's start off with the cost of living. An increasing number of reports suggest that perhaps the government uh, is seriously considering a windfall tax on energy companies. But isn't the reality that a windfall tax wouldn't really raise that much money? Don't we need to do something uh, more radical with the energy markets? Well, a windfall tax is quite radical, actually, um, and it is a short-term measure. But then again, if you look at the short term in the last three months, the increase in our gas and electricity bills at home have shot through the roof, and that's obviously having a very wide impact on the general economy as well as public services. So something needs to be done quickly, and also there's the question of consumer confidence, because, of course, if the government fails to act and continues to mess about and not actually take a decision on this, then I think people will lose confidence in the economy and we could end up falling into a recession. But the rising cost of energy is a global problem, so will a windfall tax really help if it's only going to be applied in the UK? 
Well, if you look at comparator countries, they've already stepped in, many of them, for example, in France and other places, to protect consumers from what is, of course, a global phenomenon. But um, we would like to see our own government do what other governments are doing and look urgently at this question so that um, people don't have to be stressed and worried throughout the whole summer about how they're going to manage in the autumn. I think um, there's a concern that the government's been complacent um, and that they're not in touch with the concerns of uh, everyday life here in the UK. And uh, I'm very keen to see them look at our idea, look at Labour's idea of the windfall tax as a one-off measure um, and also to also press the companies on how they're going to respond to the climate challenge because national security and the climate challenge need to be seen to go hand in hand. You mentioned France. As you say, a number of European countries have done much more radical things uh, over the cost of living, over energy prices. Surely surely the government needs to do more than just implement a a, a windfall tax, which would raise a pretty small amount of money. It does. Um, I was a borough leader back in 2010 of a local government, and uh, we had a really good insulation programme. Because of the global financial crash, the, Mr Osborne and, uh, and Mr Cameron took all that money away from local government. But had that continued from 2010 to today, 2022, we would be seeing so many more homes insulated. That would not only be better for the environment, but that would save households so much cash. Um, and it's those sorts of missed opportunities which we are now suffering from, the failure to really engage with the process. And I'm really pleased that Alok Sharma is in uh, Davos, and I hope that uh, he can hold his own government to account and um, get them to make a really bold pledge on insulating homes, starting some really important renewable investment and helping our regions, which are perfectly positioned to help with the climate challenge. And we'll be hearing from Alok Sharma later in this programme. With with your foreign affairs hat on, though, we have had this new today news today of a new economic pact in the Asia Pacific being led by the United States. Now, the UK government has been working on its own separate trade pact in the region as well. Has the US sort of stolen a march on the British efforts there? Should this have been better coordinated? I feel that there's um, a real piece of a jigsaw missing here. We've seen what happened with the Solomon Islands under the outgoing Australian government where they took their eye off the ball, um, where that continued investment and continued um, relationship needs to be um, constantly monitored and updated. And uh, I'm really delighted that the US is going to lead on this um, with the new government in Australia elected on Saturday the new leader at least. I think they're still waiting to see if they have a majority. Um, But in any case, um, those Pacific islands are very badly affected by climate change. And of course, that kind of investment is what the Pacific islanders were crying out for last November at COP26. So what we want to see is a proper plan for investment, a proper plan for um, Indigenous peoples in those areas, um, and how we can um, deepen our relationship keeping in mind that we have got a very big neighbour there in the uh, in the Asia-Pacific area who, if we don't step in, may well step in um, in advance of us. Um, so, you know, the imperatives around national security, development and climate change all dovetail really importantly together. Is the UK government spending its time wisely pursuing trade relationships with f- far-flung countries, countries uh, in Asia which are a very, very long way from us? I think the positioning uh, is very important. I think developing the ties, developing the friendships is very important. Um, You'd be aware of the AUKUS deal, and the positioning on that is extremely important. What we need to understand is 
you know, the expenditure because, you know, we do need hardware, of course we do, but we also need to see that it's it's often a small push relative to the billions and billions on lots of submarines. We want to deepen that relationship by ensuring that all of those Pacific islands um, have a good relationship. So, for example, in the Solomon Islands, you know, in 20 years having more submarines, that's not going to help us there. What we need is to be more nimble. Um, and very agile and, um, you know, re- refresh these plans all the time, not just have one one-off big hard power statement, but certainly the intent of bringing the Five Eyes together with other Pacific nations is very important and uh, Labor fully supports um, those deepening of relationships. Closer to home, Catherine, we're expecting Sue Gray to publish her internal investigation into the Partygate scandal this week. As far as you're concerned, will that be the end of the matter? I think this is going to raise a lot of questions for my colleagues who are Tory MPs on the opposite benches because they have to make the judgment about whether um, the general public will suspend their belief that, uh, you know, the culture in Downing Street was was or was not focused on the agony of families going through losing loved ones, being prevented from going into hospitals to be with dying relatives, um, struggling to um, hold down a job, struggling to educate small children as well as working. All those things which were very much on the minds of my constituents at the time. And yet it appears that um, many of the staff were allowed to just bring in drinks and that this was um, very much endorsed at the top. Both the civil servant and the prime minister in charge appear to have had their eye off the ball and appear to have been asleep at the wheel. It's reported that uh, the most senior civil servant in the country, uh, Simon Case, could be uh, criticised in the report. Um, do you think he or other senior officials uh, criticised should should resign if that's the case? I think it's really culture is set by the top person, and in this case it's the Prime Minister. It's very easy to criticise civil servants, isn't it? But if your boss, who's the Prime Minister, is saying, oh yes, please send around to bring your own booze email... That's fine, because he must approve everything that goes out, because that's what bosses do. We approve all emails, we approve the text of emails before they get sent around. And I think it's very, very unfair to be blaming junior people and to giving them fixed penalty notices when actually it was the person at the top who was in charge. Um, And our own leader, Keir Starmer, has said from the front and said if he is um, in trouble in any regard around a fixed penalty notice, um, then he will step down. So I can't see why it should be any different from the Prime Minister. So that's on Sue Gray's report. Uh, on another subject, I want to ask you about a uh, uh, report in the Evening Standard today that the RMT could be planning uh, a network-wide strike on London Underground on the day after the Queen's Platinum Bank holiday uh, weekend. Scott Rail has introduced a cutback timetable from today due to driver's shortages following strike action in Scotland. Firstly, can you tell me if, if you th- support these strikes by uh, rail workers and do you think we're in for uh, an autumn of uh, disruption on the railways? I'm not a big fan of strikes. I think they're really disruptive to people's lives, um, particularly around the summer when actually we want people to be out and about spending money to keep the economy going, seeing their friends and relatives, generally improving the mood of the country. Um, but I also think the government has failed to put in plan uh, in place a proper plan for jobs and recruitment and retention. We knew since Brexit, which was in 2016, that's a long time ago now, that we needed a completely new approach to skills and to retaining staff in the workplace. And the government has dragged its feet and failed to really um, invest in skills. And we have a big gap between 
your people who are still out of work and those who um, can be employed. And to train a driver takes several years. So my question is, why wasn't the government in 2016 doing an audit of all the businesses where they needed a skills, where there was going to be a skills shortage and having a proper plan to bring people's skills up to where they should be? Being a train driver is a good job. We should have been um, introducing more people into um, that sector and yet we've dragged our feet through the whole of the logistics sector, whether it's coach drivers, whether whether it's bus drivers. We even have shortages now of lorry drivers for bins because obviously previously in Brexit we didn't have that skill shortage in quite the same Mm. level. Now that we have got Brexit and that decision's been made, where is the plan to bring forward the workforce that we need to turbocharge our economy and keep consumer confidence up where it should be? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, rising inflation linked to the Russian invasion of Ukraine is one of the major topics being discussed at the World Economic Forum in Davos. COP26 President Alex Sharma has been speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix about whether the transition to cleaner energy has been pushed backwards by rising costs. Well, I think what, what we've seen, uh, even in the lead-up to COP26, was that you know, the clouds, dark clouds, were gathering on the geo- uh, over uh, international geopolitics. But we still managed to get a deal over the line, almost 200 countries. Um, and I think it, it demonstrated that on this issue, um, countries have understood it's in their self-interest. Uh, now, of course, uh, you know, the world has changed. Uh, we've got uh, Russia's uh, illegal and brutal invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, but I think what that has done, I mean, you, you talked about uh, coal, for instance. I think what this war has done is also demonstrate to countries the vulnerability of relying on fossil fuels. Uh, and you're seeing commitments made by governments to accelerate uh, uh, clean energy, to accelerate uh, renewables. Uh, and ultimately, I think there's an acknowledgement that our future does not lie in fossil fuels. Uh, in terms of the commitments that we got out of COP26, we're pushing forward on those. I held a meeting in uh, Copenhagen a few yeah. days ago, mm-hmm. together with, with Egypt, uh, and we, we, we got some uh, uh, good commitments uh, coming through there. The but reality Mr. is yeah. we need to go much further and faster over the next six months. But do you think because of the war in Ukraine, the bar's a little bit lower? So I understand it crystallizes some of the concerns and maybe it pushes the transition deeper, but will it take longer to achieve it? Well, I, I think, you know, if, if there is a big push in terms of uh, renewables, as, you know, all countries are talking about, uh, and in, in the UK, for instance, we've published a, a British energy security strategy. It's all about... Uh, having a big push on solar, on wind, uh, on hydrogen, on nuclear. And if you look at the price of renewables in terms of uh, solar and wind, they've come down significantly compared to to fossil fuels. But sir, in the meantime, we're also just trying to get energy at all costs out of any means just to make out for that downfall and those high energy prices because of the cost of living. Well, so uh, I think there were commitments made uh, at COP26 in terms of, of coal, uh, in terms of uh, the G20 uh, last year, in terms of no more financing of international coal projects overseas. Um, 
I acknowledge that uh, you know there may be a possibility that in the in the immediate term to deal with uh, energy uh, uh, security issues, uh, countries may need to do a little bit more uh, coal. But what that should do is give us the space to build out in terms of renewables. And I think you are seeing that happening. I just want to be very clear about this. Mm -hmm. Fossil fuels are not the world's future. We have a new Australian Prime Minister who's much more climate friendly than his predecessor. What does that change for, on the world stage for diplomacy with climate change? Well, Australia is a G20 nation and the G20 are responsible for 80% of global emissions. So, of course, I welcome the fact that, uh, you know, we're going to have, uh, you know, more countries coming forward with commitments. But ultimately, this is about making sure that every country delivers on their commitments. Uh, but the G20 matter. They really matter as part of this discussion. Uh, you know, I've been in, in Jakarta recently. Uh, talking to our Indonesian colleagues who have, of course, the leadership of the G20. And it's going to be vital, as we did last year, to use events during the year, the G7, the G20, yep. the UN General Assembly, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, yep. to keep pushing forward the agenda on climate. What we cannot allow is because of the war in Ukraine for us to have a setback in terms of commitments on climate. What it should be doing is making us redouble our efforts to deliver on the commitments we've made. Is now the right time to put a windfall tax on oil and gas companies? Well, look, I mean, oil and gas companies uh, have been making huge profits, uh, extraordinary profits. Uh, I mean, you've seen in the last quarter uh, profits which are, you know, billions above what the market was expecting. Uh, what they've talked about is investing that, uh, some of that money in clean energy, billions in clean energy. What I want to see, and I've said this very publicly, I want to see uh, in terms of the investment in the UK for these companies to set out quarter by quarter, just as these profits are coming yeah. through quarter by quarter, what their plans are in terms of uh, delivering on a clean energy transition in the UK. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of transparency, it's a matter of yeah. fairness, they need to deliver on that. And of course, if that doesn't happen, then I think we have to keep all options on the table. But why not tax them also to give to the ones that are, you know, suffering the most in the cost of living crisis? I understand that, of course, this is ultimately a decision for the Chancellor, but would you do it? Well, Francine, as I said, look, we need to keep, you know, we're a pragmatic government in the UK, we need to keep all options on the table. What I want to see is these plans, they can't be about vague promises of what happens out to 2030. Uh, this is about detailed plans, quarter by quarter, how they're going to invest in a clean energy future in the UK. It's what they've talked about. We want to see the detail. Okay, that was COP26 President Alok Sharma speaking to Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix in Davos a little earlier. Well, let's discuss the business environment in the UK. The Centre for Policy Studies says that the UK should cancel a planned increase to corporation tax to boost its attractiveness for business. That's just one of the recommendations which comes from the think tank survey of more than 100 senior business people. Well, let's discuss this now with Gerard Lyons, a business researcher at the Centre for Policy Studies. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster, Gerard. Now, um, companies had have had uh, a lot of money out of the government in the last couple of years during COVID, billions and billions of pounds. And they've also had a pretty favourable tax regime over the last few years with corporation tax cuts uh, going back many, many years. Isn't it time for them to now uh, pay a little bit more towards the, uh, the government's coffers? Hi, great to be on the show. In answer to your question, to get out of the economic malaise that we're currently in, we need the private sector to do a lot of heavy lifting. And while, as you rightly touched upon, the government acted fast and acted well in helping businesses through the pandemic, something that came clear in our survey, as you alluded to, over, over 100 business leaders, it's important that we also carry business forward and give them an attractive regime where we can grow away out of this current malaise and also achieve those things that Alok Sharma spoke about in your clip just now, achieving net zero, delivering on levelling up. You need the private sector to be facilitating that. To your point about 
um, tax regimes previously. We're not just arguing that you cancelled the planned rise, but you also dovetail it with more attractive investment allowances. Because at the moment, that's something where the UK is lagging behind. We want to have attractive investment allowances so businesses invest in people, in areas, to grow the economy. So it's a double-edged or two-pronged attack in that regard. It's about having the attractive headline corporation tax to lure people here and keep people here, especially in an internationally you know, dynamic global economy where there's so much optionality of where you put for yourself, but also having those investment allowances for people investing in the UK. How do you pay for all that then? Well, we had a sense of policy studies believe that you need to achieve economic growth to get out of the current lays that we're in, but also to hit those targets that I touched upon. Um, and so I don't think we should be worried too much now about the budget deficit when we should be encouraging about growing the economy. And this is very much in keeping what the government has said themselves. You want to be encouraging firms to be here, raise money, and in that way you make money. How do we get companies to invest more? Because we, we have a, a long-standing problem, don't we, in the UK of underinvestment, which is one of the factors which leads to our very, very poor productivity record as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Productivity has been a long-standing issue since the financial crisis. But also, as you say, amongst the G7, the UK is towards the bottom in terms of businesses and businesses investing. And as I touched upon, part of that is because we haven't had the attractive investment allowances before. The Chancellor and the Prime Minister are aware of this. Part of the reason they had the super deduction was to encourage this investment. But perhaps the issue of the super deduction was that it was finite. It helped investment happen that were perhaps going to be put on hold. But it's too short term if you're a company looking down the line, down the trajectory. So, as we call for in the report, it's about having those incentives aligned, attractive investment allowances, so companies feel that they have government on their side when they want to invest in the UK. What did you find out overall about the attractiveness of the UK to, to, to businesses, and, and is it something that has evolved significantly since Brexit? It's interesting. So... Those we spoke to were very keen to stress that the UK still remains the most attractive place in Europe, but they were pointing towards how the current direction of power, particularly on tax, means that that spot can't be taken for granted, especially amid strong international competition. Brexit did come up in conversations, but not to beat the government with. It was obviously those we spoke to highlighted that it makes the UK less attractive in terms of being a bridge to Europe. But the flip side of that was it provides us the opportunity to create bespoke regulatory regime the more innovative areas that the UK wants to be world leaders in. If we take the city, for example, we often heard about it gives us the ability to act quickly when it comes to cryptocurrencies, it, the ability to address the green agenda if that's through a carbon market. So the conversations were very fair and very balanced. They pointed to things the government were doing well, but they said overall, and this is the big thing, we moved from talking at the beginning of these conversations about tax and regulation, then up talking about culture, tone and narrative. And it's as much how much the policy has when it comes to signalling. To come back to the corporation tax, it's not just the fact that it attracts the businesses. It also sends a signal on the international stage that the UK is open and we get business, we get it, that they're on our side. And when you compare it perhaps to France, which was the example often cited, it seems that a CEO can't enter French airspace without their plane being redirected to the Elise. So it's about Boris Johnson sort of returning to his mayoral London days where he was constantly championing business. We know the government can do it. We just want them to be unapologetic about it. But it will be fair to say that 25%, which is what the government is putting corporation tax up to, 
is still very competitive, isn't it? That still puts us uh, at least sort of the bottom half of the, uh, the, the league table when it comes to, to, to lower rates of corporation tax. That, that is true. But based on the conversations we had, it was something that kept recurring. And also, it's, it's, again, it speaks to the whole signalling about if you're, it's not just this tax they're raising, though. Part of the research the CTS has shown is that when you include other taxes on businesses, including national insurance, the health and social care levy, it all adds up to a picture whereby businesses feel they're not being championed, government's not necessarily on their side, and the direction of travel will reduce our competitiveness. When all these taxes actually become implemented in April 2023, we're going to fall into the bottom third of the OECD for business tax competitiveness. If you want to be attractive in a global economy, and if you want to deliver on the government's agenda of growing ourselves out of way of pandemic hangover, then you need to have business on side, they need to be doing the heavy lifting, and therefore you need to tax the track raising. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.